Welcome to Bump City, the podcast, season two, episode 11. Here's the rundown for today. First, we're going to talk about NCAA basketball, the men and the women. North Carolina beats Duke. South Carolina gets their second title by defeating UConn. Then we're going over to Augusta, Tiger Woods. Will he play? Will he not play? He has been seen there. I'll give you my thoughts. Then we're going to football. DK Metcalf, should you trade this man? Shall he stay? Shall he go? I'll let you know what I think. Then we're going over to the Mariners organization. Julio Rodriguez, the phenom from the Dominican Republic, will be on the opening day roster. I'll give you my thoughts. Then to end this thing, I'll give you my favorite receivers in this year's NFL draft. That's the rundown. Bump City of the Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. Let's get it. Great weekend of basketball for the NCAA men's and women's side of the deal. Duke loses to North Carolina 81-77, and then South Carolina beats UConn 64-49. to But let's talk about Duke and North Carolina real quick. We know North Carolina beat Duke. They got Kansas tonight. We'll see how that works out. But the star of the game for me, and it should have been for you as well, is Caleb Love, man. Made tough shots, tough layups, ice in his veins, man. The kid had 28 points, 26 of them came in the second half, and he played the whole game, all 40 minutes with 25 seconds left in the game and this guy pulls up from behind the arc uh net no problem then later he sinks three free throws to pretty much end the game if there is no Caleb Love North Carolina is not where they are today North Carolina had four starters and double figures and only had two points from the bench got nothing from the bench while Duke had about 19 points from the bench North Carolina also turned the ball over 10 times to Duke's four times and made 10 three-pointers to Duke's five Going into this game, I'm listening to all the experts talk about what North Carolina has to do to win this game. They talk about Caleb Love, but they also talk about controlling the rebound situation, and that's what North Carolina did. Have 50 boards to Duke's 41. Late in the game, it came down to execution. I'm watching North Carolina run their offense, their rotation on defense. It all seemed to flow. It all seemed connected. I'm watching Duke. I'm watching their offense. I'm watching their defense. Offensively, there was a bunch of one-on-one basketball going on. I felt like I was looking at an NBA game where everyone clears out. You get your best player at the top of the key. You try to beat him one-on-one. You guys are spot up in the corner. I might hit you. That's what Duke's offense looked like to me. Defensively, they just couldn't keep up with what North Carolina was doing. They are winning their one-on-one battles, dribble penetration. When there was an ISO situation, they were getting it done. North Carolina was the better team. Duke looked like a young team. This is the youngest team Coach K has ever gotten to the Final Four, and it looked like it, right? Duke has become the one-and-done university. I think Coach K has embraced that, and because of that, he gets a lot of talent there. But if you get a lot of of one-and-done dudes, they're going to look young in these situations. So good game overall. I believe, what, only seven points was the largest lead of the game. The, the, The story is North Carolina beating Duke, but the bigger story is it is Coach K's last game as a coach for Duke. What does that mean? We no longer get to see Coach K when things are going great and he throws his hands up, he's jumping around, he's pointing, getting guys in place. We no longer get to see when he pulls his players to the side and he scolds them, but these players are looking him in the face and they're taking the scolding because they realize this is Coach K, one of the greatest to ever do this. We no longer get to see which top recruit is going to go to Duke and be one and done and get up out of there and then go to the NBA. I mean, Coach K has been my whole college basketball experience. Ever since I started watching college basketball back in the late 90s, it's been all about Duke and North Carolina. They are the Yankees versus the Red Sox. They are Boston versus L.A. 
You know, I mean, it, like it's there's so much tradition in this matchup that it's going to be weird not having Coach K on the sidelines. I've seen several North Carolina coaches come in and come out. I believe three in my in my years watching uh, college basketball. But one thing's for certain: we always knew that Coach K was going to be on the sideline for Duke uh, against North Carolina. Coach K was fifty and forty eight. That forty seventh and forty eighth loss have to be one of the two of the toughest losses in his career. North Carolina comes into Cameron Indoor on his farewell tour, and they ruin his last game at Cameron Indoor. And then something happens in the tournament that we've never seen before, North Carolina versus Duke in the Final Four, and what happens, North Carolina beats Duke. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of North Carolina fans. I've never seen so many North Carolina fans in my life, but for some reason, everyone was going against Duke. Is it because of the success? Is it because of Coach K? I don't understand. I, and maybe I was just oblivious and there are a lot more North Carolina fans out there to begin with. But for some reason, it seemed like everybody was rooting against Coach K. Now, you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it, look at it as these guys are just some haters. They hate greatness. Or you can look at it as Coach K is that great that people like to see the Giants fall. It's unfortunate that the Giant had to fall in his last game as a coach. For Duke in the final four, one game away from getting to the national championship. But it was also poetic at the same time. It's poetic because it's a movie, right? This is what people dream about. North Carolina versus Duke in the final four. You got Coach K coaching his very last game. North Carolina's already beaten him at home. Who else would he want to play? Now, if he's on the opposite end of history, if he wins this game, that puts him just in on a different level. We already know that he's the winningest coach of all time, but if he were to win this game, the legend grows and continues. But right now, it's not tarnished, but it's like, man, you feel for that guy. There's drama in this. If you're in North Carolina, you're thinking, boom, we beat the Giant. We were irrelevant for two years. Nobody wanted to come to the school for a couple years. We beat the Giant, the one-and-done university. Coach K, 47 years in the game. I mean, there's a drama, and that's what makes it poetic. I feel bad for Coach K because I'm watching him leave the arena. I'm looking at his face, and he's, it's just blank. His wife is walking next to him. She realizes this is the last time we're walking off the court as associates. Not associates, but the face of a Duke program. It was just sad, man. It was sad. It was poetic. It was drama. There was elation for North Carolina. Everything you wanted, you got out of that game. All right, let's go over to the women's side. Now, this game was fun to watch as well, man. South Carolina beats UConn 64-49. to um, South Carolina held UConn to eight points in the first quarter. When I saw that, I'm thinking, all right, man. <laughs> all right. South Carolina came to play. UConn no longer strikes the fear in several programs that it used to strike in. But it really came down to free throws, man. Carolina was 16, excuse me, 17 to 26 from the free throw line. UConn was one of four. One of four from the line. When you got to that fourth quarter and South Carolina hit the bonus so early, man, all they had to do was get to the hole and UConn was going to foul them because they had a couple young ladies who were getting it done. Aaliyah Boston, big girl, man. She controlled the paint. She had 16 boards, five offensive rebounds, and two blocks, and she had a redemption story. If you remember her from last year, she missed a layup, could have won the game in the Final Four, didn't get it done. But for me, it was Destiny Henderson. She was the star of the game for me. She had a career-high 26 points and led the team with four assists, also with three steals. She controlled the tempo of the whole game. I mean, when she had the ball in her hand, she was dribbling, getting to the hole, dishing it out. She hit 
All of South Carolina's three-pointers, I believe they only have three three-pointers. They were all from her. Her mid-range was on point. She controlled the tempo. She looked like a true point guard in the her biggest moments of her life. And if you know her story, then you feel even more for her. She lost her dad a couple of years. Um, she mentioned that during a post-game interview. It was just fun to watch, man. I think that was the most fun I had watching uh, women's basketball. I, I typically only tune in when it comes to the uh, – to the uh to the tournament march madness with the men too like i'll glance at games or whatnot i'll follow to see who's hot but once it gets to the tournament i'm locked in on both sides and to see south carolina do what they did to uconn who was 11 and 0 11 and 0 in all title games man things are changing i think coach staley over there at south carolina is the only coach who can out recruit uconn before then it was UConn, Tennessee, Notre Dame. You got to throw South Carolina in there, and then let's not forget Stanford. But to see Staley change the game with her style, right? She's a modern-day coach. You see her on the sideline, man. The drip is crazy. She got a nice little letterman, it looks like, with some slacks on and some and uh, uh, some sneakers. You know what I'm saying? On the other sideline, coach has a suit on, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But you see the game changing, and I think Coach Staley is able to connect with these young women. And I think that South Carolina has just established himself as a dynasty. Overall, great weekend for basketball. We'll see if North Carolina can get it done tonight against Kansas. But I enjoyed it. Next topic. There has been a Tiger Woods sighting in Augusta, man. Tiger Woods last year, last February. Horrible accident outside of L.A. Rolls his car down a cliff dang near breaks his leg doesn't know if he's going to be able to walk again this guy is walking not only is he walking he is preparing to play in the masters now he says it's a game time decision and i don't know if you guys have seen the uh the crowds that are in augusta right now just watching tiger practice thousands of people are watching tiger practice that lets you know just how important this man is to this game but there's a different angle to this right there's not as much pressure on tiger to do well in this year's tournament, as there's been in the past. Here's Stephen A. with a clip. Michael, man, it's good to see you and good to talk to you as always, man. I made the I made the uh, point just a little while ago with Urban Magic Johnson here that this is one of the first times I think that Tiger, assuming he obviously competes in the Masters, is playing with house money. It's the first time there's never been any expectations of him in his golf career because. You know, obviously, we thought that, you know, he almost got he almost he almost got killed for crying out loud. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's one thing for me to say that. But could you give us some insight, some perspective on how Tiger is feeling as it pertains to that? It's one thing to compete. It's another thing just to be out there having fun and just to be ecstatic that you're able to play the sport that you love. That's very true. And, and, you know, let's be honest, man, me and you don't agree on a lot of stuff a lot of times, but on this <laughs> thing, we agree 100%, my brother. And it's good to hear your voice as well and see you, too. I will say this. We saw Tiger, like you said, in a place where he just thought, I'm just happy to be out here swinging a golf club again. We saw that at the father-son, the PNC. And if you remember, him and Charlie got into contention and made a run to try and win that tournament. And at that time, everyone was talking. Even Matt Kuchar, fellow competitor, said, 
Tiger's game is good enough right now. But of course, Tiger was the one to say, look, my stamina is just not there. I can ride around in a golf cart all day and just jump out and hit a golf shot, which is basically what he was doing at the father-son. But to see him out here at Augusta, no one expected him to show up here. And he still hasn't said that he's definitely going to play. The thing that, that you're exactly right about as well, just seeing Tiger on a golf course at Augusta, even if it was for nine holes in practice, he's playing with that house money. That's right. The five-time Masters champion is playing with house money. We don't care how Tiger does. I don't care if he doesn't win this. I don't care if he doesn't if he doesn't make the cut. I'm just I just want to see him out there. I want to see him hit a golf ball. I want to see that walk up down the fairway. I want to see the short game. I want to see him put the ball on the string, put it three feet past the hole, boom, bring that thing back. Tiger Woods is the most important athlete to ever walk a golf course. He's one of the most recognizable athletes in the world. It's bigger than winning or losing at this point. We all realize we don't have Tiger for too much longer at a high level, at an elite level. I, I don't even think he's at an elite level right now, but just to see him out there does something to the game. I read some quotes from players. They're like, look, the game needs him. We need him. Now, obviously, these guys are focused on them. They're gonna, they want to go out there and win, but they realize when Tiger is playing golf, Numbers are high. Money goes up. They need him. And a lot of these guys grew up watching Tiger play as well. So it's not about him winning. Not at all. Nope. I won at least two rounds to make my kids sit down and say, look, this is the greatest golfer of all time. The last time Tiger Woods was playing extremely well. Granted, he won um, the Masters a couple of years ago. But before that, the last time he was at his highest level was what? 08 to 2010. I had one kid at that point. These guys don't really understand how great Tiger Woods is. They they hear us talk about it. They see some of his highlights and stuff. But this is for the game. This is for that kid at the range right now who's 15, 16 years old and needs some inspiration. This is for the old man who's going to go out to play golf on Thursday and shoot 98, right? We just need this for us. We're being selfish right now. Now, I hope Tiger understands that. I don't want him to do anything that's going to jeopardize his health, his career, whatnot. But I hope Tiger understands just how important he is to us and the game. And that if he were to play in this tournament, numbers are going to be up and he's going to have everybody's support. He could put one in a lake. He could put one in the woods. It does not matter. We just want to see him swing a golf club. I want to see that twirl one more time after he just stripes an iron in the fairway. They're just, Tiger's just big, man. I'm just excited. I hope that he plays. I hope that he goes out there and competes and let this man play well. Goodness gracious. Y'all better watch out. That's all I got to say about Tiger. Doesn't crazy. I just want to see my guy play. Next topic. DK Metcalf, man, one of the best receivers in the league. Had a decent year last year, over 900 yards, but 12 touchdowns. Russell Wilson was out for three games, so that definitely affected his numbers. But here's the question that Seattle's facing right now. Should they trade DK Metcalf? The Hawks are in a rebuild-type situation. I don't think they like to admit that, but that's where they are right now when it comes to DK. Before I give you my full thoughts, I want you to listen to Mike Florio real quick. Another name that we continue to monitor as it relates to the possibility of a trade. The latest player that the Seahawks say they have no intention of trading. And we know that's a deadly phrase if you're Pete Carroll. He said it with Russell Wilson. A week later, Russell Wilson was gone. He said it with DK Metcalf last week. So the storm clouds are kind of out there. And 
people are saying that maybe there's going to be some sort of an effort. Look, you get the teams that are willing to go all in. We know the Jets try to get Tyreek Hill, and the Jets have multiple first-round picks. If anybody's going to make a play for D.K. Metcalf, it's going to be the New York Jets. D.K. Metcalf took to Twitter today to chime in on this talk about the possibility of him being traded. We have the tweet that we're going to show here. Basically, he's shutting down this talk. The bottom line, though, is I – how much say does he really have? Now, it seems like teams are becoming more sensitive to what players want to do. But unless it's a quarterback, right? If the Seahawks are going to trade DK Metcalf anywhere, what's he going to say about it? Especially if that new team is going to pay him the kind of contract that's going to make him say, yes, thank you. Thank you for trading for me and giving me the kind of money I wasn't sure I was ever going to get. So Metcalf saying he hasn't heard anything about a possible trade. That doesn't mean it won't happen. That doesn't mean they're going to tell him about it until it happens. And that doesn't mean he's going to say no if he finds out that the team that trades for him is going to be ready to pay him big money. And, and who would make that deal if they weren't ready to pay him big money, Mike? Here's the thing. DK Metcalf is going to ask for a lot of money. Devontae Adams got $28 million a year. Then you go over to Tyreek Hill. He is getting 30 They got the bag. So what that means is DK is going to ask for the bag as well as he should. You don't give home town discounts you go and get as much money as you can because when you are done in this league they will get rid of you so now the question is should the hawks be looking to trade dk metcalf the hawks are in a rebuild type situation you hear pete carroll talk about what they want to be they want to be a team that runs a football and plays defense now listen to guys talk on air and on twitter or whatnot they're saying why would you pay a receiver x amount of dollars if you are not going to use him as a number one receiver if your focus is going to be to throw the football excuse me run the football most of the time and play good defense do you really need a receiver that is worth that much money in my opinion yes you have to pay that man you have to pay him. why do you have to pay that dude because you want to attract people to come to seattle you got to attract him. Now, you got Quandre Diggs over there. You signed Jamal Adams as well. You still got Lockett. You signed Rashad Penny. You need a guy that's going to make people believe that you can win ball games, and that is what DK can do. DK just makes people believe. They make coaches believe. He makes players believe. I got one more clip from Mike Golick now. Oh, you know, Seattle can sit there and say they're not in rebuilding mode, but they're in rebuilding mode, right? Call it retooling, whatever you want to call it. When you're when you you're losing a Hall of Fame quarterback who still has years left in the league, you know, and you're and you're starting over there, and you know, one of the greats for your organization, and a Bobby Wagner, uh, who's going to continue to play, obviously, with the defending champs, the Rams. Uh, and so I get the retooling, rebuilding part, but then you have to look at Mike. Okay. What pieces do we keep, though? Because are you going to completely empty the cupboard? Because you know DK Metcalf's going to cost you some money. We know the wide receiver position has skyrocketed in price. So do you say we need to hang on to some players that we can build around, even though we know we have to pay a price? And I think that's what you have to decide. Is DK Metcalf that guy where you can shell out $26, $27, 28000000 million? Mike makes some good points right there. All right, what are you doing? Are you getting rid of everything? Or is this is this a complete rebuild? If we're going off of what Schneider and Pete Carroll are telling us, this is not a complete rebuild. It's a retool. And if that is true, you have to keep players that are going to attract guys and guys that are going to keep you competitive. You've already lost Bobby Wagner to the Los Angeles Rams. Russell Wilson is with the Denver Broncos. 
the next superstar on that list is DK Metcalf. I say you keep the man. I say you pay him whatever. You pay him $30 million. People are going to say, well, you can just pay a quarterback that. You could have paid Russell that. No, Russell was going to ask for $50 million when it was all said and done. But this is just where the market is for a really good receiver. So if this is where the market is for a really good receiver and you want to run the football, if you sign this man, you have to take your shots. He still needs his 10 targets a game. All right? You find a way to make it work simply because DK is that special of a player. That's just my opinion. All right? That's what I think. I think you sign him. I think you keep him. Next topic. There's like a lot of dreams coming through. I'm really enjoying every single moment of it. You know, he's got a big, loud personality. I will describe myself as a bedroom. I love to have fun on the field. We're going to be on there tomorrow. Don't miss it. You hear the name Julio Rodriguez. He's a pretty exciting young player. An incredible amount of God-given talent. This guy looks like he has no bad days, and he's living his best life every single day. This is love baseball. This is just the best sport in the world. When this guy comes in into a clubhouse, everybody knows who he is. Rodriguez has got power. He can hit for average. He's hit everywhere he's gone. It's a grand slam for Julio Rodriguez. Plus, plus makeup, 90 personality for me. I mean, he's going to be a superstar. Julio Rodriguez is my guy. You know, everyone in the clubhouse gets to see him as a person, and that's something that really separates him. He's definitely a special talent. The Mariners are calling up Julio Rodriguez, the phenom from the Dominican Republic. This kid is 6'3", 228 pounds. I've been hearing about him for the last couple of years. He's the number three overall prospect in all of baseball. The Mariners surprised a lot of teams last year. The whole league last year won 90 games, was close to getting to the playoffs. This is the year that Service and DePoto have been telling us that is going to happen. Last year, they're telling us be patient. We'll see what happens. They say, look, focus on 2022. This is 2022. I am focusing on 2022, and I'm focusing on Julio Rodriguez, and he makes me want to believe in what they are doing. With the signing of Winker, Suarez, and Robbie Ray, then you throw Julio Rodriguez into the mix, they're making moves. It wasn't the huge moves that we were expecting with a Chris Bryant move or whatnot, but they have made some moves. They shored up <clears throat> excuse me, the starting lineup to put some power into the lineup with Winker and with Suarez. Then you bring Julio in there. And now you're trying to sure up the rotation with Robbie Ray. So you got Marco Gonzalez. The Mariners on paper look like a team that should compete right now. And with Julio Rodriguez coming up, it just it makes me feel good. Now, here's what he brings to the table, man. This guy has been killing spring training. He's batting 424, three home runs, and an on-base percentage of 486. He's getting on base, he's driving in runs, and he's hitting bombs. This offseason, his main focus was working on not trimming down, but getting faster. The kid looks faster. If he wasn't making the right moves when it comes to his physique, they would not feel comfortable putting him in the center in center field and then allowing him to steal bases. They're saying Julio Rodriguez is going to be the next big thing in Seattle, and I am bought into this. The last Rodriguez we saw here was A-Rod, and we know what he did for the organization. I'm hoping Julio can do the same. This makes me want to watch every single game of Mariners baseball this year. I'm glad these guys have finally got it right. I'm glad they're calling them up. I thought they were going to be a bit timid and go the Jared Kelnick way and make them work, make them work. Then Julio gets discouraged, but nah. Nah, they're bringing him up right now, and I think they should. Opening day, we should see Julio Rodriguez out there, and I think it's going to be exciting at home. It's going to be packed there at, what is it now, T-Mobile Stadium. Julio Rodriguez has the opportunity to change how the country sees the Mariners, and that's a lot of pressure for a guy, but he's young. He played, he's Dominican. He helped the Dominican Republic get a bronze uh, excuse me, a bronze medal in the Tokyo Tokyo Olympics. So he's used to pressure and he's risen risen to the challenge every chance that he's gotten. 
Julio Rodriguez, man, I'm excited for this dude. Opening day, go get a young fella. My favorite receivers in the draft this year, one is not going to be a surprise to you, is Drake London. Drake London, man. I don't know if you guys know, but I work for the Pac-12 Network. I cover all these games. I actually went to Colorado live to see USC take on Colorado. And, of course, Drake London did his thing. In eight games this year, he has 88 catches, 1,084 yards, and seven touchdowns. When I see this young man play, I see a young Keyshawn Johnson. I see a guy who's fast enough to get open, but he's going to attack the ball at his high point. He has run after the catch. He will lower his shoulders and play big, even though he's not a real big guy. He is tall, but not very thick. He's got everything you need in a receiver. His hands are crazy. Was a two-sport athlete. Actually played basketball at USC as well, but decided to focus on football, which I think was a great decision. Now, what, yesterday he actually postponed his pro day a little bit because he had some tightness in his hammy. He's coming back off a a broken ankle situation. Drake London is the best receiver in this draft, and whoever picks him up, they're going to have a good one. USC's been putting them out as of late when it comes to receivers. They've been putting them out since I was in college. But as of late, they put these guys out. Uh, Kerry Colbert was the wide receiver coach over there. He is now with the Florida Gators, but he played a big role in the development of these guys. Drake London is my favorite receiver in this draft. Now, the next receiver I'm going to talk to you about is probably someone uh, West Coast, you guys probably know about it, but East Coast, Midwest, you probably don't, man. It's Britton Covey, the little slot receiver from the University of Utah. Only had 52 catches for 514 yards, but he had three touchdowns. He had three pump return touchdowns this year and one kick return touchdown in the Rose Bowl. What I like about this guy, one, he's old to say. College football, he's old. 25 years old, I believe he went on a mission. Um, I think he's married, about to start a family or whatnot. But he is the slot receiver that every team needs and wants. When I was coming up, if you were – a uh, smaller guy, you had to run a 4-3, uh, low 4-3s, mid 4-3s, low 4-4s. Uh, but now, man, the game is changing, and you need guys like Britton Covey. He's the guy who's going to look fast on the football field, but, but probably is gonna only going to run like a 4-5 or a high 4-4. But his feel for the game is crazy. I've seen him work in a slot. I see him work outside. He's a smaller guy, has good hands, and he's tough, man. He takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I love that about Britton Covey. He's my second favorite receiver in this draft. I don't think he'll get drafted. If he does, it's going to be late, but he is definitely going to get a chance to make a roster in the NFL. Great in the return game, great in the slot, can play outside, was a leader for the U, for the Utah Utes, got them to the Rose Bowl. I'm really feeling Britton Covey. So two receivers, one, Drake London, you guys probably already knew about, but the second one, Britton Covey, return specialist. I think that's where he makes the team in a return game. Next topic. Time to put a bow on this thing. This is the Let It Burn segment. This is when I get something off my chest. It's therapeutic for me to talk to you guys, but here's more just a, a goodbye, man. We're saying goodbye to Bobby Wagner. Bobby Wagner is out this piece. Russell Wilson is out this piece. I might have already talked about it a couple times already, but I felt like we need to revisit. This is official. Bobby has signed. Russell has signed. It's the beginning of a new era here in Seattle. I've covered this team for five or six years now. It's going to be different calling games, covering games, and not having 54 and number three out there. It's been good. I want to show some love and some appreciation to those guys. I know uh, the 12s feel a certain way about it, but it is what it is, man. They put 10 good years 
into this organization. I think they deserve a little bit of love, man. So this is my goodbye to Bobby and to Russell Wilson. Thank you guys for listening to Bump Seat of the Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. It's been real every Monday. Holla at me. Talk to y'all soon.